0: Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep, quiet stories and meditations to help you find a little peace at bedtime or anytime. Joe and I just finished up our first week out at the coast. It's only a couple of hours away from the mountain, but it is such a different world. The muscle I pulled in my neck last week has gotten much better and we're really loving being close to the ocean and the redwoods during the week while he's working and up here with the swimming holes and the shady mountain oaks on the weekends. If you want to see what the coast looks like, I took Bodie out to the beach the other day and made a video for our YouTube channel. I'm making longer videos there where you can just kind of spend a little time with us in the places we love, like down at the creek or out at the beach. It's about 10 minutes of the sound of the surf, the foghorn, and Bodie fetching some sticks. It's really relaxing, and it looks great in HD on a big screen. You can just search for Listen to Sleep on YouTube or click the link in the show notes to go right to it. And while you're there, would you do me a favor and subscribe to our channel? I'm trying to get it up to a 1,000 subscribers, and I think I'm right around 800 now. So, thanks so much. I want to thank everyone who supported the podcast by joining the Patreon this week. Thank you, Victoria, Gavin, Cheryl, Carmen, Lara Stella, Adam, and Quinlan thanks so much. Your support really means a lot. And if the podcast helps you sleep, I sure would appreciate your support too. For less than $3 a month, you can get the new episodes of the podcast a day earlier and ad-free. And when you join, you'll get an immediate download of the entire audiobook of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland as a thank you gift. You can get all of this and the other longer books that I read serially on Listen to Sleep Plus on Wednesday nights when you support the podcast for $5 a month. Subscribing to Listen to Sleep Plus gives you access to all the chapters of the books I've read so far, like Peter Pan, Winnie the Pooh, and many more, plus a new chapter from the current book I'm reading every Wednesday night. And right now, that is Treasure Island. I know sometimes this might sound like a public radio pledge appeal, but here's the truth. It's just me making Listen to Sleep, and the Patreon helps me to continue doing this, knowing that I've got a steady income from all the folks who are chipping in a little to keep the podcast going. You can get more information about all of this at listentosleep.com, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Because Bodie and I have been enjoying the beach so much lately, I thought it would be fun to take you on a sleepy beachcombing trip with the sound of the Pacific Ocean in the background and the opening chapter from a book published in 1901 called The Sea Beach at Ebb Tide, which beautifully describes the seashore and some of the things you might find there. Let's just start by taking a deep breath in and out. Letting go of the day, feeling yourself sink deep down into the mattress with the weight of gravity pulling you down and another deep breath in. And out. Nothing to do. Nowhere to go. No one to be. This is your time. Quiet time. One more deep breath in with me. And out. If you get tired while I'm reading to you, that's okay. Just let yourself drift off. Signs on the Beach The seashore, with its stretches of sandy beach and rocks, seems, at first sight, Nothing but a barren and uninteresting waste. Merely the natural barrier of the ocean. But to the observant eye, these apparently desolate reaches are not only teeming with life, they are also replete with suggestions of the past. They are the pages of a history full of fascination, for one who has learned to read it. In this history, even the grains of sand have a part. Though so humble now, they once formed the rocky barriers of the shore. They stood as do the rocks of today, defiant and seemingly everlasting. But the fury of the sea which knows no invincible adversary has laid them low. Every coastline shows the destructive effects of the sea for the bays and coves the caves at the bases of the cliffs the buttresses stocks needles and scaries are all the work of the waves and this work is constantly going on. Even a blind person could not stand long upon a shingly beach without knowing that the sea was busily at work. Every wave that rolls in from the open ocean hurls the pebbles up the slope of the beach. And then, as soon as the wave has broken and the water has dispersed the pebbles come rattling down with the currents that sweep back to the sea. The clatter of the beach thus tells us plainly that as the stones are being dragged up and down, they are constantly knocked against each other. And it is evident that by such rough usage, all angular fragments of rock will soon have their corners rounded off and become rubbed into the form of pebbles. As these pebbles are rolled to and fro upon the beach, they get worn smaller and smaller, until at length they are reduced to the state of sand. Although this sand is at first coarse, it gradually becomes finer and finer, as surely as though it were ground in a mill, and ultimately it is carried out to sea as fine sediment and laid down upon the ocean floor. The story of the sands is not only one of conflict of the sea and rocks. It is also A story of the winds. It is the winds that have rescued them from the waves and driven them about, sifting and assorting them, arranging them in graceful forms, and often heaping them up into dunes, which, until fastened by vegetation, are themselves ever moved onward by the same force sometimes burying fertile lands, trees, and even houses in their march. The sands, moreover, are in turn themselves destructive agents, to whose power the many fragments which strew the beach and dunes bear ample witness. The knotty sticks, so commonly seen on the beach are often the hearts of oak or cedar trees, from which the tiny crystals of sand have slowly cut away their less solid outer growth. Everything, in fact, upon the sands is beach-worn, even to the window glass of life-saving stations, which is frequently so ground that it loses its transparency in a single storm. The beach is also a vast sarcophagus, holding myriads of the dead. If ghosts be ever laid, here lie ghosts of creatures innumerable, vexing the mind in the attempt to conceive them. And there are certain sands which may be said to sing their requiem. The so-called musical sands, like the singing beach at Manchester-by-the-Sea, which emit sounds when struck or otherwise disturbed. On some beaches, these sounds resemble rumbling. On others, hooting. Sometimes they are bell-like and even rhythmical. The cause of this sonorous character is not definitely known, but it is possibly due to films of compressed gases which separate each grain as with a cushion, and the breaking of which causes, in the aggregate, considerable vibrations. Such sands are not uncommon, having been recorded in many places and they exist probably in many others where they have escaped observation. They may be looked for above the waterline, where the sand is dry and clean. We have to do, however, in this volume, not with the history of the past, nor with the action of physical forces, but with the life of the present. And to find this in its abundance, one must go down near the margin of the water, where the sands are wet. There is no solitude here, for the place is teeming with living things. As each wave retreats, little bubbles of air are plentiful in its wake. Underneath the sand... Where each bubble rose lives some creature, usually a mollusk, perhaps the razor-shell solanensis. By the jet of water which spurts out of the sand, the common clam, Maya arenaria, reveals the secret of its abiding place. A curious groove or furrow here and there leads to a spot where Polynices' heroes has gone below. And the many shells scattered about, pierced with circular holes, tell how Polynices and Nasa made their breakfast and their dinner. Only the lifting of a shovelful of sand at the water's edge is needed to disclose the populous community of mollusks, worms, crustaceans, all living at our feet, just out of sight. Even the tracks and traces of these little beings are full of information. What may be read in the track of a bird on the sand is thus described by a noted ornithologist. Here are footnotes again, this time real steps from real feet. The imprints are in two parallel lines, an inch or so apart. Each impression is two or three inches in advance of the next one. None of them are in pairs, But each one of one line is opposite the middle of the interval between two of the other line. They are steps as regular as a man's, only so small. Each mark is fan-shaped. It consists of three little lines, less than an inch long, spreading apart at one extremity, joined... At the other. At the joined end, and also just in front of it, a flat depression of the sand is barely visible. Now, following the track, we see it run straight a yard or more, then twist into a confused ball, then shoot out straight again, then stop with a pair of footprints opposite each other, different from the other end of the track, that began as two or three little indistinct pits or scratches, not forming perfect impressions of a foot. Where the track twisted, there are several little round holes in the sand. The whole track commenced and finished upon the open sand. The creature that made it could not then have come out of either the sand or the water. It must have come down from the air. A two-legged flying thing. A bird. To determine this, and next, what kind of bird it was, every one of the trivial points of the description just given must be taken into account. It is a bit of autobiography, the story of an invitation to dine, acceptance, a repast, an alarm at the table, a hasty retreat. A bird came on wing, lowering till the tips of its toes just touched the sand, gliding half on wing, half a foot, until the impetus of flight was exhausted. Then, folding its wings, but not pausing, for already a quick eye spied something inviting. A hasty pecking and probing to this side and that, where we found the lines entangled. A short run after more food, then a suspicious object attracted its attention, It stood stock still, just where the marks were in a pair, till, thoroughly alarmed, it sprang on wing and was off. Following the key further, he draws more conclusions. The tracks are not in pairs, for the bird does not belong to the perchers. Therefore, it must be a wader or a swimmer. There are no web marks to indicate the latter. Hence, it is a three-toed walking and wading bird. It had flat, long, narrow, and pointed wings because it came gliding swiftly and low and scraped the sand before its wings were closed. This is shown by the few scratches before the prints became perfect. A certain class of birds thus arrests the impetus of flight. It had a long-feeling bill, as shown by the little holes in the sands where the marks became entangled, and so on. These combined characteristics belong to one class of birds and to no other. So he knows as definitely as though he had seen the bird, that a sandpiper alighted here for a brief period, for here is its signature. It is plain that tracks in the sand mean as much to the naturalist as do tracks in the snow to the hunter, and trails on the land— to the Native American who follows his course by signs not seen by an untrained eye. The tide effaces much that is written by foot and wing, but sometimes such signs are preserved and become veritable footprints on the sands of time. In the Museum of Natural History in New York is a fossil slab, taken from the Triassic sandstone, showing the footprints of a dinosaurian reptile now extinct, which, in that long ago, walked across a beach. An event unimportant enough in itself, but more marvelous than any tale of imagination when recorded for future ages. From such tracks, together with fragments of skeletons, the dinosaur has been made to live again, and its form and structure have been as clearly defined as those of the little sandpiper. It has been said that everything on the land has its counterpart in the sea, but all land animals are separate and independent individuals, while many of those in the sea are united into organic associations comprising millions of individuals, inseparably connected, and many of them interdependent, such as corals, hydroids, etc. These curious communities can be compared only to the vegetation of the land, which many of them resemble in outer form. Other stationary animals, such as oysters and barnacles, which also depend upon floating organisms for their food, have no parallel on the land. The water is crowded with creatures which prey upon one another, and all are interestingly adapted to their mode of life. Shore species are exceedingly abundant, and the struggle for life is there carried on with unceasing strife. In the endeavor to escape pursuers while they themselves pursue, these animals have various devices of armature and weapons of defense. They have keen vision, rapid motion, and are full of arts and wiles. One of the first resources for safety in this conflict is that of concealment. This is affected not only by actual hiding, but very generally by mimicry in simulating the color of their surroundings and often by assuming other forms. Thus, for instance, the sea anemone, when expanded, looks like a flower and is full of color, but when it contracts, becomes so inconspicuous has to be with difficulty distinguished from the rock to which it is attached. Anemones also have stinging threads, nematophores, which they dart out for further defense. The study of biology has great fascination, and the subject seldom fails to awaken interest as soon as the habit of observation is formed. Jellyfishes hardly more dense than water, and almost as limpid, swimming about with graceful motion, often illuminating the water at night with their phosphorescence, showing sensitiveness, volition, and order in their lives, cannot fail to excite wonder in even the most careless observer. Not less interesting Are the thousands of other animals which crowd the shore, lying just beneath the surface of the sand, filling crevices in the rocks, hiding under every projection, or boldly, perhaps timidly, who shall say, lying in full view, yet so inconspicuous that they are easily passed by unnoticed." To find these creatures, to study their habits and organization, to consider the wonderful order of nature, leads through delightful paths into the realms of science. But even without scientific study, the simple observation of the curious objects which lie at one's feet as one walks along the beach is a delightful pastime. The features which separate the classes and the orders of both the plant and the animal life are so distinctive that it requires but very superficial observation to know them. It is easy to discriminate between mollusks, echinoderms, and polyps, and to recognize the relationship between univalves and bivalves, sea urchins and starfishes, sea anemones and corals. The equally plain distinctions between the branched, unbranched, tubular, and plate-like green algae make them as easy to separate. The pleasure of a walk through field or forest is enhanced by knowing something of the trees and flowers. And in the same way, a visit to the seashore becomes doubly interesting when one has some knowledge, even though it be a very superficial one of the organisms which inhabit the shore. Rocky shores furnish an abundance and great variety of objects to the collector. The seaweeds here find places of attachment, and the lee and crevices of the rocks afford shelter to many animals which could not live in more open and exposed places. The rock pools harbor species whose habitat is below low water mark, and which could not otherwise bear the alternation of the tides. The first objects on the rocky beach to attract attention are the barnacles and rockweeds. They are conspicuous in their profusion, the former encrusting rocks with their white shells, and the latter forming large beds of vegetation. Yet both are likely to be passed by with indifference because of their plentifulness. They are, however, not only interesting in themselves, but associated with them are many organisms which are easily overlooked. The littoral zone is so crowded with life that there is a constant struggle for existence, even for standing room, it may be said, and no class of animals has undisputed possession of any place. Therefore, the collector should carefully search any object he gathers for other organisms which may be upon it, under it, or even in it, such as parasites, commensals, and the organisms which hide under it or attach themselves to it for support. Let the rockweed be carefully examined. Among the things likely to be found attached to its fronds are periwinkles, which simulate the plant in color, some shells being striped for closer mimicry. Sertularian hydroids also are there, zigzagging over the fronds and forming tufts of delicate, horny branches upon them. Small, jelly-like masses at the broad divisions of the fronds may be compound ascidians. Calcareous spots here and there may be polyzoans of exquisite form, while spreading in encrusting sheets over considerable spaces are other species of polyzoa. Tiny, flat, shelly spirals are the worm cases of Spirobus, A pocket lens is essential to enable one to appreciate the beauty of these minute forms. Under the rockweeds are many kinds of crustaceans. Perhaps there will also be patches of the pink urn-like egg capsules of purpura at the base of the fucus. Various kinds of seaweeds abound in the more sheltered parts of the rocks, And among them will be found amphipods and isopods, many of which are of species different from those of the sandy beaches. Here too is the little caprella, imitating the seaweed in form and swaying its lengthened body, which is attached to the plant only by its hind legs. On the seaweeds, as well as in the tide pool, may be found many beautiful hydroids, and on them, the curious little sea spiders, animals which seem to be all legs. Mollusks and other classes as well, differ in different latitudes. On the rocks of the northern shores, Littorina and Purpura shells are very abundant. The latter in various colors and beautifully striped. Limpets are also plentiful, but are not as conspicuous, since they have flat, disc-shaped shells. When their capture is attempted, they must be taken unawares and pushed quickly aside, else they take such a firm hold of the rock that it is difficult to dislodge them. Near low-water mark under ledges will perhaps be found chitons, which are easily recognized by their oval-jointed shells. On the California coast, in like localities, will be found the beautiful haliotis, Akamai, and chitons. Every stone that is lifted will disclose numbers of little amphipods, which will scuttle away on their sides to other shelter. Worms will suddenly disappear into the mud, and perhaps a crab here and there, having no alternative, will make a stand and fight for his liberty. Flat against the stone and not easily perceived may be a chitin, a planarian worm, or a nudibranch. And just below the water's edge are sea urchins and starfishes, which grow in numbers as the eye becomes accustomed to the search. The rock pools are natural aquaria, more interesting by far than any prepared by man. The possibilities of these little sea gardens are beyond enumeration. The longer one studies them, the more one finds. In them, all classes of seaweeds and marine invertebrates may be found, and their habits watched. The great beauty of these pools gives them an aesthetic charm apart from the scientific interest they excite. Perhaps one may find here a sponge, and removing it to a shallow vessel of seawater, One can watch the currents of the water it creates. Several sponges of the same species placed in contact will, at the end of two days, be closely united. If the sponges are of different species, they will not coalesce. In the clefts and crannies of the rocks are various fine seaweeds, often of the red varieties. Sea anemones hydroids, polyzoans, crustaceans, mollusks, and ascidians. Crabs will be snugly ensconced under their projecting surfaces. Most species are more plentiful at the lowest watermark, and many are found only at this point and below. On sandy shores... The greater part of the inhabitants live under the surface. Many give evidence of their presence by the open mouths of their burrows, and some distinctly point out these places by piles of sand or mud in coils at the opening. Some tubiculous worms have their tubes projecting above the surface, the tubes of Diopatra are hung with bits of shells, seaweeds, and other foreign matter. Some mollusks announce themselves by spurting jets of water or sending bubbles of air from the sand. The majority of the underground species, however, give no sign of their presence on the surface and must be found by digging. Many of them go deep into the sand, And in searching for worms, the digger must be quick and expert, or he will lose entirely or cut in two many of the most beautiful ones, which retreat quickly and to the extremity of their holes at the least alarm. One can be a rambler on the sandy beach for a long time, ...without being aware of the many beautiful objects which inhabit the subsurface of the sand. The curious crab, Hippa, will disappear so quickly into the sand that one is hardly sure they have really seen it. The vast number of worms will surprise anyone who searches for them by their variety, their beautiful color, and their interesting shapes... Here again, a glass is requisite to appreciate the delicacy and beauty of their locomotive organs, their bronchi, and so on. The most common of the gastropod mollusks on sandy shores are Nasa obsoleta, Nasa trivitata, and Polynices heroes last are detected by the little mounds of sand which they push before them as they plow their way just below the surface. On more southern beaches, Fulgur, Strombus, and pyrulla are the common varieties. Olivella, Oliva, and Donax, also inhabitants of sandy beaches, will quickly disappear when uncovered by the waves being rapid burrowers. Most of the many dead shells on the beach will be found to be pierced with a round hole, which is drilled by the file-like tongue, or lingual ribbon, of Polynices ursosalpinx, or NASA, which thus reach the animal within and suck out its substance. Another similar species is Polynices duplicata, which extends to the Gulf of Mexico, while Polynices heros is not commonly found below Hatteras. Crustaceans are abundant on the sandy beach over its whole breadth. Some of the sand crabs live above the tide mark. Among these is the fleet-footed ossipoda, which is interesting to watch. Often they go in numbers to the water's edge and throw up mounds, behind which they crouch like cats, watching for whatever prey the tide may bring up. When unable to outrun a pursuer, they rush into the surf and remain there until the danger is past. The wet sand is often thickly perforated with burrows of the sandhoppers. These often rise about the feet, as do grasshoppers in the field. Hippotaupoida is a remarkable crab, somewhat resembling an egg. It is not likely to be seen unless searched for by digging at the water's edge. It burrows so rapidly that one must be quick to catch it after it is exposed by the shovel. In some places, the tests of sand dollars are common. The living animal may be found buried just below the surface at extreme low water mark. The sea rack drifted in lines along the shore will repay careful examination for here will be found many things belonging to other shores and deep water. It is often alive with sandhoppers, which hop away while one searches for less common things. Often the most delicate seaweeds, numerous small shells, worms, polyzoans, etc., will be found there. The surface of the sand beach is strewn with remains of many species, usually beach-worn, but interesting nevertheless as examples of species one would like to find in better condition, but good specimens of which elude ordinary search or are unobtainable except by dredging. Egg cases form another class of objects which are often gathered with no idea of their identity. Of these, the most common are the long strings of saucer-like capsules which contain the eggs of the mollusk Fulgar, those having square edges being the egg cases of F. Carica, and those having sharp edges, those of F canaliculata. Collar-like sandy rings contain the eggs of polynices, which are cemented together in this shape. The boys of Cape Cod call them Tommy Cod Houses. Cylindrical piles of little capsules, sometimes called ears of corn, hold the eggs of Chrysodomus. The irregular masses of the small hemispherical capsules are those of the common whelk. The so-called devil's pocketbooks are the egg cases of the skate. The equipment for collecting upon sandy beaches is a shovel, a sieve, and a net. Numerous trials should be made with the shovel from about half-tide mark to as deep as one cares to wade, and the sand raised should be carefully searched for shells, crustaceans, and worms. By washing out the sand in the sieve, the smallest specimens, which might otherwise escape notice, may be secured. On a rocky beach, a strong knife and a net are sufficient.